Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Paul Barnhurst, founder of the FP&A Guy. We'll be covering three main topics with Paul today. First, what is FP&A and why should a company care about the function? Second, how does an FP&A department and revenue operations work together? And third, technology for FP&A professionals. When will we finally move beyond Excel? Paul, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast. Well, Ray, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here today. And just to tell your audience a little bit about me, my journey kind of started probably about six years ago when uh, I was looking for a job and somebody said, hey, I'll talk to you, but I don't want your Starbucks gift card. I'd offer them a gift card. I want you to write an article for my website. I'm like, well, I suck at writing, but I'll write your article. And I actually found I kind of liked it. Ended up writing a couple more for him and started to get active on LinkedIn, which eventually led to some opportunities to be on webinars. And then it started leading to actually some job opportunities to work with some FP&A tools, some of these vendors, as well as a consulting opportunity. And about nine months ago, now nine, 10 months ago, I looked at my wife and I go, I think I could turn this into a business. She kind of looked at me like, you're crazy. And about a month later, she goes, all right, I believe you. You can quit your day job. And that day I put in my notice. And I've been doing this now for about six months, 100% full-time for about two, three months now. I ended up staying a little longer with my job. And you know, I do everything from training. We just trained actually the, about 50 employees at a FP&A planning tool company on FP&A. They're engineers, they're product people, they're salespeople, customer support, do Excel training, do a lot of content creation. I host my own podcast called the uh, FP&A Today. It's sponsored by DataRails and we bring in different experts from finance, particularly FP&A, but also CFOs and talk to them. And then I also, you know, in addition to that, do some consulting and things around FP&A, financial modeling, that type of thing. Well, FP&A. So first of all, we in the B2B SaaS industry, more acronyms, they're around acronyms all day long. So let's start (laughs) at the very beginning, because a lot of our listening audience, SaaS founders, CEOs, Maybe they haven't worked in larger corporations. They don't even know what the hell FP&A. What's this FIPA thing? So first of all, what does FP&A stand for? And what does the function do? You know, so kind of funny thing I tell people stands for, because when I first started using the FP&A guy, someone came up to me and said, what's the F and Panda guy? F Panda. And I was like, no, no, it's FP&A. And so, you know, that's kind of been a running joke that I'm the Panda guy, but Obviously, FP&A, it stands for financial planning and analysis. And you're right. Historically, it's you know been something that you see in big companies. And the way to think of it, you know, one definition I like to use when using our training is, you know, there's the thing everybody thinks about budgeting and planning, but there's so much more of that. You know, an FP&A department will handle integrated financial and operational planning in many cases, trying to make sure that all of it hangs together. Often you hear the term today was called extended planning or connected planning, which is a way to say that, look, 
FPNA can be the hub, not just for that financial, but making sure it all hangs together and that everybody's on the same page. So in many ways, it's almost an internal consultant or advisor. You know, they do management and performance reporting. Typically in companies that have FPNA, they'll assist with the board deck or even own the board deck with the CFO. IO continuous forecasting throughout the year, financial modeling for ad hoc projects. You know, it can be anything from we're looking to launch a new product or, hey, should we hire more inside salespeople? You know, sometimes those analysis can be done in different departments, you know, rev ops, sales ops, but often that comes to FPNA. And then one of the biggest parts, and it's a term you hear a lot today, is partnering with the business. And really what I like to think of when I sum up FPNA as one sentence is FPNA's job is to help maximize shareholder return by helping the business best deploy a future dollar. Counting tells you about the past dollar. FPNA is helping you allocate those future dollars to achieve the company's strategic objectives. And so I look at them as kind of an internal consultant that's supposed to help create value. Well, it's interesting. So they look at data, they do some analysis, they make some recommendations to help increase company growth, profitability, and thus enterprise value. But some of this sounds a little bit like what the revenue operations function does, but with a financial lens on it, more of that income statement balance sheet mm-hmm. lens. So is there a clear delineation between where revenue operations ends with their reporting analytics and analysis and where FP&A starts, Paul? Not industry-wide. Definitely not industry. You know, different companies may have clear definitions. I'll say in the company I was in, which, you know, was over a billion dollar revenue company where I first started learning in SaaS, we didn't have a, a true revenue operations. We had a sales operations and sometimes they got involved in a little bit of the revenue stuff. And a lot of times it fell on FPNA, like the weekly meetings, getting into the detailed forecast with sales. We did that. You know, I actually got involved in helping design sales commission plans, which isn't typical for FPNA to get into that level of detail, but you see that sometimes. There are those core functions that FPNA does. And then, you know, beyond that, it really depends on the company. Like my, you know, my last company, you know, there was a very close alignment, it wasn't owned by, but was it was owned by finance, was the data team. And there was a very close alignment there. So what you're seeing in some companies, you occasionally do see the operations rolling into the CFO now, you know, versus being under the CRO. I know of, you know, a guy right now that's a small startup where he's both CFO and, and it's a decent sized startup. It's scaling and chief operations officer. So I, I think it just depends on the company and how they want to set it up. But no matter how they structure it, the core ownership of the budgeting and planning at a minimum is always going to sit with FPNA as well as that management reporting. The monthly okay. reporting, you know, the financial statements, all those things. Beyond that, it really depends on the culture of the company, probably the leadership and what they think makes sense. Okay. Planning and modeling, that it for sure fits an FPNA. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about something that is getting a lot of buzz today in the industry, and that's forecasting. Yep. Taking historical information to help predict the future. Do you have a point of view on how involved FPNA should be in the forecasting process? I definitely think forecasting of all your financial statements, any kind of rolling forecast you're doing where you're rolling it up at a company level, that should be managed by FPNA. Now, you know, often the business may do a bottoms up view and bring that to FPNA. They may do a tops down. Sometimes FPNA may own that. You know, like I said, the last two companies I had, 
two different approaches. Two companies ago, it was really owned by FP&A. I mean, a lot of the detail. Yes, sales would do some things, they'd bring it to us. But at the same time, we were doing a lot of that detailed level and sitting with sales and going through it. You know, the next company, it was very much, we just validated it. So it was really, you know, FP&A's job was to do that sniff test and say, okay, they've built the bottom up. They've brought us those revised forecasts. Now we're going to need to aggregate it see how, how close that comes to the strategic objectives for the company, the targets by the investors, and does it make sense? Can we validate it by looking at the different data and saying, you know, sales has come to us with a reasonable forecast. We can believe this and we're comfortable, or we feel there's a lot of risk, or we feel they're, you know, the term sandbagging, right? They're coming in lower than what they can offer. So at a minimum in that forecast process, FP&A needs to be that non-biased view that can help validate it and say, Yes, you're comfortable taking to the board. Here's why. Here's what we looked at. Here's the things that we think make sense or no. Here's the risks. We probably should push back on the business. So I think yeah. they serve as that partner. Now, you know, how involved they get is going to vary on the company. So they are that review and validate source and maybe provide some insights and advice on yep. how it could be different if you don't think it should be validated. Got it. But that's probably regarding things like, new revenue bookings or existing customer expansion or customer retention. So kind of some things that will end up on the income statement. But then there's this kind of gray area of SaaS performance metrics. These are the things that I spend my entire day on, things like net or gross dollar retention, CAC payback period, maybe even the SaaS magic number or CAC ratio, customer lifetime value. Do you have a point of view on how involved and where FP&A should be involved on those SaaS performance metrics, which can be great signals to future growth and I, profits. I like to see, as a general rule, I think CFOs, given how many questions they get from the investors, how they manage those investor relations, should really own most of that data. And the data and analytics team, and whether it's someone in data analytics or somebody in FP&A, to ensure that it's standard across the company. Because I've seen so many times where sales ops calculates one thing one way, product calculates it another, you know, some FP&A is calculating it another. And I think having, again, somebody who's not, you know, not part of the different departments, but there to help them as kind of, like I said, an internal consultant or advisor, I think it makes a lot of sense for many of those metrics, ownership of at least defining them, and making sure they're consistent and it makes sense in the story, FP&A is a good one to help do that. That doesn't mean they necessarily do all the calculations and they own them, but helping ensure that there's a standardization across the company. Now, I've seen some companies have FP&A serve that role, but then I've also seen some companies invest and create this financial operations function. Is there a clear delineation between financial operations and the FP&A function? I would say there is not. I mean, it varies just like sometimes commercial finance. And, you know, I've even seen some companies like when I was leaving American Express or even when I was there, but even more so, they were very much moving to, uh, okay, all our FP&A people are centralized and all our, some people call them finance ops, they call them more business support or decision support people will sit in the business for finance. And so it's something that goes back and forth, just like the idea of what's a finance business partner. In much of Europe, the role of a finance business partner is separated from the role of FP&A. But in the US, you don't see that. 
Rarely do you see a job role that's titled finance business partner, but it's common in Europe. They both sit in finance. That finance business partner is doing a lot of what we might call finance ops, what we might call FP&A. So they're you know, outside of the core functions of obviously the financial planning and budgeting, you know, the management reporting, helping manage the forecast, those things, there is a lot of gray area in what FP&A does. Like I said, I had one company that had the idea of FP&A almost ran the business and I got involved in everything. Sometimes I was like, no, that's not my job. I'm, I'm financed. I'm not the business. And then other companies where, you know, okay, finance, you just do the numbers. Like, you know, let us do everything else and we'll just give you what you need. So why do we need an FP&A guy? It's so murky about what the function does, but I might hear it depends. But at the foundation, that financial planning, budgeting, and modeling is the core and almost every FP&A. Correct. Right? Every, every company is going to have the core planning, budgeting, forecasting, you know, management and performance reporting. Some level of business partnering is going to be in finance and, you know, finance operations, whether that sits directly under FP&A or is a separate department, they're going to work closely together. So we talk a lot about scale and stages in the B2B SaaS industry. It's like, okay, when do you have a VP of finance or a CFO? You usually start with accounting. Is there kind of a range of revenue or ARR that you think a CFO should seriously consider an FP&A resource? You know, again, part of it, I think, depends on how quickly they're scaling. And typically what you see, you know, when they start to scale, when they're raising capital, it's helpful to usually have some kind of fractional CFO. And so that's becoming very popular nowadays. If they're raising a lot of, you know, a lot of capital and they need clean statements, they need someone that can help guide them through that, especially if they're founders that don't have that experience. That's usually what you'll see them do. And, you know, it might be someone that just helps with the fundraise. They might come in 10 hours a week. You know, other, you sometimes see fractional FP&A where, okay, we've got to the point where we need help with our financial model. We need someone to come in and build it, but we don't want someone full-time, right? Because do you want to hire a finance person or do you have, want to have another salesperson that can increase that ARR to 300,000? So that's what you're seeing a lot more of is that fractional. And, you know, the other part that it depends on is how seasoned are the leaders? You know, like I know a company that, yeah, they're probably valued a few hundred million. I think they've raised at least, you know, 50 million in, re in revenue. They don't have a CFO, but they had two or three people on their leadership team that had finance experience, you know, in their past. So again, it's a little bit of a depends, but I think, you know, you hit that series B, series C, you probably need someone as you're really starting to scale and the more funds you've raised, you know, pre-seed, seed, even C series A, sometimes series B, you know, probably you might need the occasional fractional support, a little more than just a bookkeeper to just come in and help either with some fundraising or maybe helping with a model or some things, but not always necessarily full-time. So the other thing that's going on in our industry is I'm seeing an explosion of SaaS tools built for the FP&A function. Sometimes they come at it from an annual planning and modeling tool. Sometimes it comes from more of a reporting analytics perspective. And sometimes they even see it just coming from a SaaS performance metrics in integration to the transactional systems to allow you to do dashboarding and some level of cohort analysis. So in your opinion, as a longtime FP&A practitioner, now the FP&A guy, what's the core value of an FP&A tool? Well, what should what? it be focused in delivering? Yeah, so I think the core FP&A tool typically is first function is planning and modeling. 
Next is kind of reporting. So the way I think about a core planning tool, and there can be a few different tools you can have within FPNA, but if you're looking for a core tool, there's really what I call four pillars. And I wrote an article about this on LinkedIn and my, uh, my website. And the first pillar is the data management. So what data does it bring into that system? And what you're typically seeing is you're bringing in the accounting data, the ERP, you're bringing in the CRM data, you're bringing in some level of the HR data, and then some tools are bringing in billing data as well, particularly SaaS, such as Mosaic, where you really need that deferred revenue schedule. And then you have some that will connect with your data warehouse as well. But at a minimum, everybody is going to connect with your ERP and most robust tools today that, you know, even some small market, but definitely getting a mid market or above, they're typically going to connect with your CRM and your HRIS data if you need them to, especially your third gen tools are using native integrations versus some of the older tools that do ELT. In addition to that, they have to build the data model. They kind of come up with the logic of how that all works together. You know, how many dimensions and different models and metrics can you have? Because that impacts downstream kind of your next areas of the tool, which is your, your modeling engine, right? You need to model everything. You need a planning tool. And there's a couple different approaches you're seeing for that core engine. You know, some tools have said, look, Finance is never giving up Excel, right? You can pry it from our cold, dead hands, basically. And so they've said, we'll just give data management, workflow, collaboration, integration, you know, all those things structured that Excel is not good at, version control, et cetera, et cetera. We'll give you that, but we'll actually allow you to do your modeling in Excel and load it to our database. And so they're 100% just trying to keep you in Excel. They're just basically saying, look, we get it. You love Excel. It's flexible. Let us just help you there. You've seen some even do that with Google Sheets now. As you start to see, you know, a little bit more of Google growing. And then you have those that say, look, we're going to create something that is native to the tool. And sometimes it has a very close spreadsheet tool with a lot of syntax similar to spreadsheets. Sometimes it takes a little different approach. But, you know, that that's probably the biggest challenge with these planning tools is the modeling part. Because nobody's been able to create that flexibility of Excel. Most companies still end up doing some level of their forecasting and budgeting in Excel, or they end up back there, even if they buy a, a planning tool. So that's the area that I think everybody's trying to really figure out right now, in addition to the data. Then you have the reporting side, right? If you bring in all that data, you better be able to report it. So you got your dashboarding and reporting, and you have some companies that are creating tools just for that, some that are creating tools just for the modeling, and some that are even just trying to manage your data. And letting other systems, you know, do the other piece of it. But generally in the planning tool, you see all those. And then the last piece that you see is, is workflow and collaboration. So there's a big focus, especially with what I call third generation tools, which are cloud-based, low cost, small to mid market. I've come out in the last five, six years, a lot of them in the last two to three. There's a very big focus on collaboration and strategic finance involving the whole company in that in the forecasting and budgeting process. And a lot of those tools are doing well among technology, you know, some in SaaS, I think I mentioned Mosaic earlier, which is a B2B SaaS tool. And so that's that's kind of how I think of it. And the marketplace, like you mentioned, is exploding. I talk to a CEO almost on a weekly basis about some tool that they want me to demo. Well, I'm just thinking about it because everything you said is like, wow. It's almost like MarTech and now sales tech and now revenue intelligence mm -hmm. tech. It's exploding. 
Is there kind of a, a market map or a landscape map where a CFO could look and say, who are all the players and who should I evaluate? Yeah. So there's a little bit out there, but not great. So CFO tech is the term I hear. And there is a venture capital firm that's been Guy Post, Woder, born every day about it. And has started to bring some stuff to it. Uh, Sapphire did a little bit of a, a map of what they call next-gen fintech. And then in addition to that, I've put out some things on uh, LinkedIn, and I'll be adding some to my website. I went out and put a list of almost every tool in the FP&A space. I came up with over 80. And since oh, wow. then, I've learned of more. So there's about 90 logos. I just listed when they started, the name of all of them. I did something similar for spreadsheets and something similar for what I call financial modeling tools. And there's some overlap between them. And where I separate spreadsheets is some spreadsheets are not trying to be a modeling tool. And some modeling tools are deliberately not trying to model in the form of a spreadsheet. So I separate it a little bit. And altogether, probably between those three kind of logos and things I've created is about 120 tools, 130. And there's another segment that's growing really quickly, and that's the revenue operations and intelligence tools. And I bet there's a lot of overlap between your yes. FP&A landscape and that, I think they say R-O-N-I landscape. I'm sure there is, you know, just like, I focus on what I call financial planning and analysis tools, and I've excluded like cash flow forecasting tools, but those are mm. still very similar. So I could probably add another, you know, 25 tools. I've excluded some of those that are just reporting, like Fathom is a, a popular just reporting tool or Data Deer. And so, you know, how you define them and how you segment it all is there's overlap. So I'm going to ask you one last question. I can't believe our 30 minutes are almost up. But I have had this discussion with many revenue operations practitioners about what they need to do to make revenue operations a more strategic seat at the table function versus a tactical deal with data integration and reporting function. So do you think if someone's looking at entering in as a first FP&A resource or they're looking at maybe building an FP&A leadership career, how do you make it a strategic function versus being viewed as this tactical planning, modeling, and budgeting function? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things. You know, First, they have to be willing to get out from behind the spreadsheet. The average FP&A person spends three hours a day in Excel or more. And so you can't learn the business and be that partner if all you're doing is modeling. So that's the first thing is really getting out and communicating. They talk about a couple of the key roles in FP&A today are influencing and storytelling. And that's where you get that seat at the table is showing that you can bring value. Now, doing external analysis, benchmarking, if it needs to be done, now, going in and digging into situations and coming to leadership and saying, hey, we found some opportunities to save money and showing that you can think about things. And I'll give an example. I worked in a company where our data was just, it was a total mess. And I had worked extremely hard and I put a bunch of data around all our products and margins and different things in front of our product team. And it was the first time some of them had ever seen some of the numbers because nobody had done it before, because just how bad the data was. And that got me a seat at the table the rest of the time I was there. I got called for everything. It's like, oh, he knows the numbers. He knows the business. And I got to the point where I knew how all the customers were, and I could talk to the sales guys intelligently, and I could talk to the product people and say, have you thought about doing this? And well, why is that the right price? And I was really, you know, got to the point where the general manager depended on me. He's like, well, where, where's my finance guy in the meeting versus, ah, we don't need to start. We don't have finance. And so showing you can add value and really learning the business 
and understanding it from a strategic standpoint, not just a tactical, not just from the financial numbers, but how it operates. What are those unit economics really helps FP&A get that seat at the table. Great advice. Well, unfortunately, we're going to, have to wrap up, but I want the listening audience to get a chance to know Paul Barnhorst a little bit more on a personal level through three quick questions. All right. So first, which CEO or company do you think is a must follow today? That's a great question. You know, one CEO I really like to follow, I follow him on LinkedIn, and it's it's probably a lesser known one, but it's dear to my heart because it's local here to Silicon Slopes, to Salt Lake. And actually, I'm going to mention two. One is Jaron Paul. He runs Spiff which is a sales commission tool. And they've been growing rapidly. He scaled in other businesses. And the second is a guy by the name of Davis Smith that runs Cotopaxi. And Cotopaxi is a certified B Corp, so benefits corporation. One of the first ever to raise venture capital while giving away 1% of the revenue. Bain invested in them and they're looking to grow internationally. And his view is, as a business, we should be able to help alleviate poverty. There should be a kind of a new capitalism in the way we think about things. And just amazing person, what he's done for sustainability, for poverty, while scaling a business that's done extremely well. So he's he's a must follow for me. That's great. That's kind of two ends of a spectrum. One is how do we calculate and pay salespeople? And the other one is how do we make the world a better place? Okay, second question. Which tool should every SaaS company be using? I would say every SaaS company is going to use a spreadsheet, whether that's Excel or Google Sheets or one of these new ones, Equals, Sheet Rocks. There's some new stuff coming out with some some different functionality. Well, 74% of companies that we surveyed say they use Excel as their primary SaaS metrics reporting tool. So I think you're right. You better have Excel or Google Sheets. Okay, last question. Somebody's just thinking about is graduating college. Maybe they're in finance, maybe they're in business, but they're thinking about, well, maybe this FP&A career is an interesting one. What advice do you have for them? I think the biggest advice, you know, technical skills are important early, but you'll get the most benefit by focusing on learning to communicate, learning to, you know, think strategically and work with people. And so I really think focusing on that ability to communicate influence people, tell the story, will help you a ton. That was an area I struggled and really had to learn because I'd get too detailed being the the analyst that I was. It was really hard to come back and get to that 50,000 foot level. So I think learning that skill early will do wonders throughout your career because it will show that you can be a leader, that you can think strategically, that you can communicate, that you're not just an analyst that you know wants to crunch numbers in Excel all day. I think that's great advice. In fact, I think storytelling with data is the best way to allow the data actually drive decisions. So we got to wrap up today's Metrics and Measure Up podcast. Paul Barnhurst, the founder of the FP&A Guy, thank you so much for being our guest. Yes, thank you for having me, Ray. I really enjoyed spending some time with you, and I look forward to the, the podcast. And to our listening audience, it would mean the world to us if you're finding value in our speakers and the content we discuss to go ahead and subscribe to our channel and your favorite podcasting app. Go ahead and give us that five-star rating. And please provide us a review on what you found valuable in the podcast or even how we can make it better for you. Thank you, Paul. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thanks, Ray. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.